good morning. Time now for the Fuzzy Logic Shine Show. And what better way to celebrate this beautiful autumn day than to remember the work of a remarkable woman who lived in the south of England. And her name was Mary Anning. And we're going today to tell the story of Mary Anning here on Fuzzy Logic. And my guest in the studio this morning, Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum. Good morning, Phil. Morning. How are you this morning? Oh, fantastic. And there's lots of excitement for you at the moment, Phil, because you've just had your book release called The Order of the Dragon. I have, yeah. It's pretty exciting. Um, It's a historical fiction based on all real events. Uh, set in London in 1888 and if anybody knows what happened in London in 1888 that's the Jack the Ripper murders so it's a kind of behind the scenes look at what might have occurred (laughs) during that time (laughs) so it's a bit of historical fiction everything in it is absolutely true except for my characters (laughs) it's kind of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of historical fiction They're, they're, they're the they're the two characters that kept popping into Hamlet and popping out of Hamlet and then popping back into Hamlet and then they'd have their own storylines in the background. So that's what my book's like. Ah, yes. And of course, I remember studying them at school. Now, um, if, if readers want to get it, you can get it on Amazon, but it's not released yet in Australia, I gather. That's correct. Uh, we haven't released the uh, Kindle version yet and Amazon Australia only does Kindle versions. So uh, you can order it. It'll just take a couple of days to arrive from the States. Well, it's getting corking good reads. So uh, I'm, I'm going to get my myself a copy when I can. Everyone should, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Required reading. All right, now before we get into Mary Anning and great characters in uh, the history of paleontology, because there are some really interesting people involved in in paleontology, Uh, let's just do some quick science news and some this day in science. Now, one that caught my eye just this week was dogs, right? Now, dogs and humans have a very deep history, don't they, Phil? They do, yeah. Um, It looks like dogs kind of adopted us or we adopted dogs but it's probably the first and um they've kind of adapted their whole lives around us and and um one really can't survive without the other at the moment uh well the, the dog um my oscar <laughs> is, is a very cute border terrier right and he's got you know he leaves his fury where he sits on my bed now if i talk to oscar and i say oscar get off the bed he sort of you know one eyebrow goes up but he he, he watches very carefully right and if i pull a face at him he sort of seems to know that i'm i'm communicating with him and by the way when you talk to a dog do you notice they tilt their head they do yep they do and they're actually listening (laughs) they they do there's a couple of reasons why they do that one is that they're using it to localize the source the sound right so the sound goes into your left and right ear and you tend to stand above the dog but so by tilting its head they can they can pinpoint the source a bit better but the other reason is it's a social cue and so it's a dog's way of saying, yeah, I got you, dude. I'm with you. Now, this little bit of research has <laughs> come out pretty quirky. These people sat dogs. They, they taught them how to sit in an MRI scanner. I, I think it's a might, feed animal by itself. <laughs> yeah. That, well, you have to sit. You've been in an MRI, I think, I've, I've, I have. I've, I've damaged my ankle and my knee a couple of times, and I've had quite a few MRIs. And they're very strict on staying still. You can't move. Yeah, and it's an incredibly piece of, uh, expensive piece of equipment. And it's very loud. And it's really loud, yeah. yeah. And I went in there to have my uh, brain scanned because uh, of my hearing loss, and they were looking for a thing called acoustic neuroma. But what they wanted to find out about the dogs is how they respond to human faces, right? So uh, in this one experiment, they got six dogs, and they had a whole bunch of failed dogs, by the way, who wouldn't sit still. <laughs> well, they are dogs. <laughs> they are dogs, yeah. Uh, so they got the dogs to sit very calmly, and they had images shown of human faces. Now, these dogs showed signs that they recognised the individual faces. And the way they did it was um, the scanner shows which parts of the brain are active. So this would be functional MRI, I think it's the technical term. Uh, So it's part of the oh, hang on a sec, uh, the the brain area that recognises faces, but there's a thing called para... I have to (laughs) read this carefully. Paradolia uh, that's P-A-R-E-A-I-D-O-L-I-A. Uh, and it's the inclination of a person, primarily, to recognise a face from three circles. 
Well, humans are extremely good at recognizing faces, and maybe the dog being able to do that is the same with the humans. Like, it's a bio, there's a very solid biological reason why we are insanely good at seeing faces yes it's and in fact there's a dedicated bit of the brain i'm going to impress you with technical <laughs> to the fusiform angular gyrus well that's easy for you to say <laughs> <laughs> so uh what, what they saw was parts of the brain related to facial recognition lit up they were active now in another experiment they wanted to see if the dog could recognize your your expression so is it a happy face, smile, smiling face? Now, I'm not sure. that From what I read, it's not clear how subtle they are reading expression, whether it's like a look of concern. You know, there's a vast range of subtlety in a human facial expression. So I suspect this was fairly crude, right? Uh, um, uh, I don't know the research, but um, uh, that would be a very solid form of communication, and communication is a high sign of intelligence. So... Um, you know, being able to even discern any sort of face. You know, we have troubles with that with chimpanzees because, you know, what we think is a smile may not be actually a smile. It's a grimace or things like that. So, you know, we're, we're the intelligent animal and we can misunderstand things. So if a dog can actually intercept even the most basic facial expression, that's a huge leap in intelligence. It, it is a huge leap and pretty handy if you want that spare bone that you're just about to throw away. Yeah, or, or you've just been caught chewing the pillow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there were 24 dogs who lined up for this experiment, but uh, I think a few of them didn't sit still, so they end up actually measuring 11 of them. But uh, what you've got to be really careful of in this conversation, you, you hint at it there, Phil, and that is um, anthropomorphizing. Yeah, we're very good at assuming something because you know we we read we we interpret our own thinking into something that may not have anything to do with what we think it is. Uh, exactly, exactly. So we 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 sort of emote with a dog. The dog emotes with us, but then we transfer human logic to dog logic, and it doesn't often doesn't work. What we what we think it might be, you know, happy is actually is sitting there thinking, you know, I could eat you. I am a wolf, you know, <laughs> and then you'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> its own motivation <laughs> uh, and of course we do it with each other and um, there's that famous guy called the horse whisperer isn't he because he learned to interpret how horses interpret body language and a bizarre thing is like talking about that is um if you talk to people who work at zoos um the most dangerous animal in the zoo you'd think would be a lion or a predator but we've studied them. We understand their behavior very well. So you understand when a lion isn't happy and not to go near it or something. But the most dangerous animal in the zoo is the zebra because we just look at it and think it's a horse. It's not a horse. It's got no, almost nothing to do with being a horse. And when zebras attack, they don't stop until you are dead. If they see you as a threat, they're going for you. And they bite and kick. Have you ever seen zebras fight and the males fight? It's a nasty fight. And um, people just, like, it looks like a horse, must be a horse. And so they just maybe assume, you know, use the same tactics that you'd use for a horse, and it doesn't work because they're a completely wild animal with their own motivations and they're not a horse, so... Well, I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. And, of course, they don't, like you say, they don't have huge pointy teeth. Well, they do. Like, well, yeah. They're but they're horse, not, not, not fangs. Yeah, but they're not a carnivore. So. But they are a serious set of chompers if, if they want to do you some damage. Yeah. If you go back to the old, you know, what's the most dangerous animal in Africa other than the mosquito? And, you know, you start off with the hippo and then the, the um, buffalo and the rhino and the elephant. I haven't mentioned a carnivore yet. It's, herbivores are nasty animals they're used to being preyed upon and so they they're flighty and they're looking for any sign of danger and they'll go you just to keep you away so well of course phil i, th I thought you might say and i think it's pretty well known to most of us that the most dangerous animal is of course uh, yeah, or humans humans <laughs> yeah yeah um well kangaroos now there was a fatality in australia from a kangaroo uh, oh, so, really? yeah oh, we shouldn't uh, laugh that's, that's i think there's a been a thing but Hey? It's a tragic thing. I shouldn't have laughed, but yeah. Well, it's... Somebody it, it, killed by a kangaroo. It's it is a sort of a black comedy. <laughs> yeah, but here lies Uncle Mort, uh, killed by a kangaroo. I think they sort of surprised a large male, and they got a serious set of back legs on them, and uh, with the big claws, they will do you damage. There's a great um, YouTube clip at the moment where a kangaroo's surrounded by... Um, uh, a, a pack of dingoes and dogs and it's fighting them off it it, it actually stood up to them and they wouldn't come near it because you know they, they 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 understand you know you don't go near the front end the front end's dangerous it's got those big powerful well the single toe that massive toe on that on that leg which is 
you know, just built for kicking. So, yeah, they're very dangerous. I've heard of them drowning dogs. Oh, really? They get into the dam that they'll push the dog underwater. Yeah, yeah. Now, since you mentioned kangaroos and as a lover of fossils, Phil, uh, one thing I noticed when I went on a trip up to the west, you know, towards Tibberborough, Broken Hill, Ivanhoe, by the way, if you want a life experience to put on your bucket list, go to the Ivanhoe RS Help. <laughs> really? <laughs> rough place. <laughs> well, it, it's not the Riviera. No, no, it's, it's pretty calm, but um, anyway. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> a lot of kangaroo carcasses along the edge of the road there. And when a, when a kangaroo dies, it curls back. So it's, it curls towards, pose. yeah, upwards from its tail. And that's, there's a particular reason for that, isn't there? Yeah, we see it in dinosaurs all the time because they've got a very similar body structure to uh, kangaroos. Um, most of them are bipedal. And, uh, yeah, it's things like ligaments and muscles contracting when they're, they're dead, like... A, um, uh, giraffes, giraffes are terrible like their necks curve in when they die um, because yeah the, the, all your neck muscles and your back muscles you're keeping them you have to mentally keep them unflexed so if you don't think about it their natural form is to, to tighten up and so when you're dead obviously that's what they do and so you always see especially in dinosaurs the head and the tail always kind of turning into a big u shape and it's called the classic death pose and we see it in almost every form of dinosaur that we're no, found because there's a very um, heavy duty bit of musculature along the back there now when a human dies we go the opposite direction because the bulk of our muscles are in our front side but probably not nearly as pronounced as, the, as it would be with a kangaroo but humans are very strangely designed <laughs> if we could you could spend hours talking about the bizarreness of the human body well let, let's do that on a future uh, fuzzy logic field because uh, and of course i know you use advisedly the word design there yeah, yeah, yeah sorry i should well, say well that's a good point because later in the show we're going to be talking about some characters related to the great charles darwin uh, mary anning who's going to be uh, getting our featured billing today and another character named richard owen what a what an interesting you, character he was. You almost need sinister music when you say Richard Owen. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk more about him soon. But uh, let's just do a little diversion now uh, here on Fuzzy Logic. My guest today, Phil Hoare from the National Dinosaur Museum. Now, Brontosaurus. Uh, there was once a creature known as a Brontosaurus. I remember them well from childhood. And I'm having to restrain Phil because he wants to leap up and show me. <laughs> um, in 1989, the U.S. Postal Service had to withdraw a stamp because it used the term Brontosaurus, which was then outmoded and became replaced by Anapatosaurus. A bit of a story here, Phil. Tell me some, some bit more about that one. Well, what happened was um, way back when they found Brontosaurus, um, they are... Uh it didn't have a head. So they had a big skeleton, no head. Then they found another skeleton, no head. And as they looked around, on the first skeleton, they found a head in a quarry that was kind of nearby. So the head wasn't even anywhere near the body that they found, but it was close enough. So they went, well, that must be the head that belongs to that body. So for a long time, we've had this kind of half-destroyed head that they kind of molded to make it look more like a complete skull. And they put that on the head. And so we just assumed that was the correct head, and that was Brontosaurus. And then almost immediately they realised that was the wrong head. And they took the head off, and uh, uh, they realised, you know, the, the sorry, I should say, the second skeleton was the mo more complete with the head. That's the one they called Brontosaurus. They realised they put the wrong head on it, and they had to go back to the first skeleton, which was the Apatosaurus skeleton, because in uh, science you must use the first name. If the first name has no reason not to be the valid name, you have to use the first name. So Apatosaurus was found first, wasn't quite as complete as the one that they thought had the head, so they went with the head name. When they realised their mistake, they went to the original name, which was Apatosaurus. But they kind of didn't tell anyone. And the big problem was the uh, American Museum of Natural History in, in New York refused to change the name. So for years and years, even though all of science said there is no such thing as Brontosaurus, it's actually a Patasaurus. Uh, a, a Brontosaurus is, a, is, a, is the wrong name. The New York Museum refused to do that and for decades would have Brontosaurus out on the front of their skeleton. And so all these books and magazines and documentaries and the Flintstones and everything that used Brontosaurus were kind of taking their, their cue from 
the New York Museum. And then eventually they realised, yeah, we've been doing the wrong thing. They eventually changed the name. For years we've been trying to tell everyone it's actually a Patasaurus. There is no such thing as Brontosaurus. Until last year. <laughs> Until last year they realised they'd made another mistake and they'd put two very closely, very similar species. To, they bundled them together so they had to split them. And half of them are the original Apatosaurus, and the other half have returned to the Brontosaurus name. So, bizarrely, Brontosaurus is back. Well, it's, it's kind of an understandable mistake, except for maybe being um, attached to their mistake, I guess. Yeah, and finding a head, you know, a mile away and assuming that's the right head. Well, we, which was not attached, yeah. uh, or disarticulation, I think they called it. Yeah. Now, I, I saw an example of that recently, and, and since we were talking about kangaroos, on my way home, I cycled down the uh, cycle path to home, uh, a kangaroo had been hit by a car, and then over time it will it smelt for a while and then it sort of the skin and everything all just a pile of bones and there's it's along the stormwater drain and so bit by bit this thing has been strewn for a half a kilometer up and down the creek and that must be pretty typical of what happens to bones in the wild it must be very unusual to have the perfect conditions to 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 keep something in its pretty much its original shape or something even close to it. Well, that's why you find so many marine fossils. You know, the majority of fossils we find are marine fossils because tides and currents mean everything will eventually land in the lowest point of the ocean or the creek or, or anything, the lowest part of the, the water, um, and they'll get buried. And so you get what's called a mass mortality. You'll find lots of things there. Um, if you think of uh, the wildebeest in Africa, they, every year they've got to try and cross that raging river and crocodiles attack them and things like that and a lot of them drown because the water is so so um, uh, powerful and they all get washed downstream and all those bones all end up in the same time so I dare say in 10,000 100,000 years some paleontologists will find this mass mortality of uh, wildebeest bones um, and that's been happening for years that was happening you know probably with the dinosaurs you know mass herds trying to cross rivers or getting caught in floods and so you find a lot of them all in the same space whereas something like a tyrannosaur they're very rare because you have to find the location where it laid down and died and if you look around australia australia's a massive continent to find the one spot where a bus-sized animal has died it's very rare especially seeing it's probably still under the ground you know most of them aren't exposed so you well, have no chance and and we do have a fantastic example of that near us here in canberra don't we out at coonabarabran at the, at the fish, the fossil oh, site. Yeah, the Canawindra. So. Canoundra. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got the wrong... That, oh, you're not, yeah, Canoundra. Yeah, 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 they just <laughs> hate it when you say Canawindra. <laughs> yeah, Canoundra. Yeah, they, or you say Gundawindi. Gundawindi. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, a, that's an amazing location. Now, I have been out there a couple of times and was invited to go to the dig once, but it, we've never been able to actually... It seems to be not active at the moment, the dig, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's been changing hands a bit. Austra the uh, Australian Museum has kind of got involved, got out of involved, got back involved, so um, we're actually heading up there on Thursday to have a chat with them, so to see where see where they're, they're at at the moment. But yeah, the same thing. That was only discovered by a, a road crew cutting a new road through the area, and they happen to find this giant slab of fish fossils. Oh, fantastic stuff. Now, here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking dinosaurs. We're talking great characters in paleontology, or we will be in a moment. Uh, we're going to do a little diversion uh, before then into uh, some interesting things, other things this day in science. But uh, we might just break to uh, a little track here, uh, here on Fuzzy Logic. And this will be... Goanna, you've chosen us Goanna today, Phil. And Solid rock. <laughs> a bit of bit of good Australian rock here on Fuzzy Logic. I've got plenty of talk about today, Phil, but I've just got to do a few little other diversions. This day in science was the first woman in space, was a, uh, a Soviet, a Russian woman named Valentina Tereshkova. She was born in 1937. Uh, she worked in a textile factory, which is how she got the job, because she knew about parachutes. <laughs> her textile <laughs> skills helped her with parachutes. There you, there you go. Uh, Harry Coover, the guy who invented superglue, was born in 1917, Michelangelo, 1475. Uh, died on this day an interesting character named John Goodsir. He was a Scottish anatomist, an observer of cellular life. And he was a guy who realised that stomach upsets could be caused by bacteria. And then he predated uh, Louis Pasteur by using uh, bacterial treatment for uh, antibacterial treatments for infections. 
as they say, you know, um, you always stand on the backs of giants. No, it's interesting to always find out when people who you classify as the first often are using science and smaller pieces of the puzzle that were used by other people before them. They assembled bits were there from other people. That's exactly right, yeah. And Einstein even, you know, his ideas came from a whole bunch of other people. And Even Darwin, you know, a lot of his ideas came from his grandfather, Erasmus. Erasmus Darwin was a huge uh, evolutionist and, and had worked on it quite a bit. So it was in the family. <laughs> so he, he'd already been thinking along these lines. Yeah, and not, course, not to the standard, but yeah, to p- bits and pieces of it. Well, Dar- Darwin is my all-time hero, and we just got to get him on fuzzy logic. He's really booked up, but <laughs> uh, we, we are going to get this guy on the show because I reckon he would be amazing. Always opening libraries and things up in the North End. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, another thing that uh, John Goodsir did was uh, he looked at the origins of permanent and deciduous teeth. Now teeth of course being a big deal in paleontology Phil, uh, often the only evidence you get of an animal is, is just the tooth. Especially things like sharks because sharks are cartilaginous, they don't have bones so they only really leave their teeth and a lot of science about sharks is just done by you know the shape of the tooth and things and teeth in sharks are quite bizarre There's if you've ever heard, um, if you rub a shark's skin it's like sandpaper Well, under the microscope, each skin cell is the same shape as the tooth. So there's an idea that shark's teeth aren't actually real teeth like ours. They're escaped skin cells. And that's why you see a shark's jaw. uh, They've got little teeth getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the main teeth, and they're constantly replacing their teeth because they're not true teeth. They're actually part of their skin makeup, their skin cells. That's that's amazing. Phil, I I learn so much every time you come on the radio. Um, I, I think we could learn from sharks, not not by biting swimmers, <laughs> which they rarely do. <laughs> which they don't do often. Yeah, I think it's often an, an exploratory nibble because I think this is interesting. I wonder what that is. Yeah, they learn a lot through their teeth. Yeah, they're biting things to see if it's edible or just to learn what it is. They're very curious. Uh, and they probably don't particularly like the taste. You know, as a khaki human. Um, <laughs> but but they, they, their teeth grow out. And I think, you know, he, he, we've all been to the dentist and enjoyed sitting in the chair for some excruciating procedure. Why don't we just have our teeth fall out and grow new ones? Well, I think there is some science about that um, because we only get the two sets and then we're done. So there are ideas of how we can in the future replace teeth because it's a it's a big money industry a lot of people out there without any teeth oh, okay now phil he, here's something that i've been thinking about a bit because I, i'm writing my own book uh, and this is about the world of sound and how we experience sound and uh, one of the things that uh, really has occupied a lot of my attention it's actually a really difficult topic is the evolution of hearing and and as a friend of mine pointed out hearing versus listening so uh so i the way I define it is hearing is the ability to sense sound and when you listen you're able to interpret the sound so you need a brain you need some kind of neural apparatus to listen as such but uh, in 1920 or thereabouts just before the US brought in prohibition (laughs) very successful program (laughs) uh, yeah not (laughs) Uh, they there was a, there was a major alcohol distiller who got wind of the fact that well it was well known that prohibition was being discussed right so they built this dirty big tank uh, out of wood a big a vast keg and it was really large like a swimming pool size thing made out of timber and and their idea was to brew as much of this stuff as they could before prohibition and and then this is capitalism kicking in right make a buck and they filled it with molasses which we're going to use to make uh, whatever brew it is. I th- um, uh, whiskey, I think, or, or um, Whis- bourbon. Maybe. Bourbon, yeah, yeah. something like so, that, yeah. Well, cool. the whole thing was made in a rush, and it split open, right? So in midday, in this uh, compound by in a shipyard, the thing split open, and there were horses, there were workers, all sorts of people wanting, and all of a sudden they were swimming around in this great wash of molasses that came out of this tank, and quite a few of them drowned. Yeah, I think something like 16 people were killed. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's quite astonishing. It, it was pretty pretty nasty. Now, imagine that you're swimming through that molasses. So humans are not designed to, for mobility or horses in molasses. Now let's shrink down to the subatomic level, and you're now a sub, you're a single cellular organism, and you're swimming through water. 
our experience of water is that it's like soft and pliable and it's you know quite accommodating and it's pretty easy but to a single cell organism it's molasses yeah, it's very yeah very viscous and thick it's viscous and thick and getting through that stuff requires some pretty fancy equipment and those would be the cilia the little hair like structures that come off the side of the cell and they propel themselves through this what's to them is molasses right now those same kind of structures stay with humans they're on our, on our hairs uh, they use to push uh, nutrients to your digestive tract but for people like me who are interested in hearing and sound they also line the cochlea in your inner ear so what was once Oh, what is actually both uh, a mechanism for moving around becomes a mechanism for sensing. And as a you know somebody who works with evolution and uh, how we came from fish, uh, they're also on fish. A lot of people don't realise fish have hair as well, and they make up what's called the lateral line along their body. So uh, fish can actually sense water pressure change through these hairs. And um, so say a, a, a bird is attacking them, you know, diving down to attack them. They feel that pressure wave before the beak and they'll jink, they'll suddenly move. Not that they saw the bird, that they felt the pressure wave of something attacking them. Um, and when you blow blow air on your hair on your arm you feel the exact same pressure wave that's the exact same uh, evolutionary the same mechanism that's it that's it that's it exactly and especially deep sea fish where the light is so poor this then becomes one of their major sense organs now the fish do actually have ears as well and they've got a little bony structure inside the head called the otolith uh, ota meaning ear and lith meaning stone uh, and so they actually have a, an ear mechanism and they have a kind of a cochlea as well and a, a little duct at the back of the gills which which transmits the pressure that's as i understand it uh, it, it's so I, I've really bitten off a big chunk in this story of evolution. Oh, and um, since you're talking about sharks, Phil. Yep. Uh, now uh, uh, another little anecdote, right? There was Australian speedway motorcycle racer. Uh, was he killed as, by a shark? <laughs> well, yes, oh. yes. I shouldn't uh, laugh. <laughs> uh, well, he <laughs> he probably did after the fact. So what happened was, uh, and this was during 1930s. He was a speedway champion. His name was um, Van de uh, Van de Prague. Van Prague. Ah, L. Um, I forgot the first name, L. Leo, Laura, anyway. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Van Prague. He, you know, he was good with machinery and stuff. He became an Air Force pilot, and he and his crew were flying over the Straits of Indonesia, over the Sumba Straits, 1940-something, uh, thereabouts, and they were shot down by Japanese, and they found themselves swimming around in the water. So they managed to escape from the from the sinking plane. And so what's the worst thing that an air crew could imagine happening to them? Number one. Yeah, I was going to say sharks. Well, number one being shot down. Oh, well, true. And you want to make a bad day worse? Sharks. So these guys are flailing around in the water. One of them's got an injury, or a couple of mildly injury, and they have these cool things called flotation devices called May West. Yep, it's the expandable ones. <laughs> yeah, I think named after the buxom uh, Hollywood actress. Uh, and so uh, during the night, they started to get circled by sharks. Now, what would you do if you had a shark coming around? Well, limited options, right? Well, yeah, I was always told you punch it or you try and punch it in the nose. Uh, that does work, apparently. I've actually heard Valerie Taylor, the fantastic uh, documentary maker, uh, describe how you could punch sharks. Uh, Lionel, his name was Lionel Van <laughs> Prague. Yeah, it's the secondary brain kicking in. <laughs> yeah, that's it, the hind brain. So what do they do? They pulled out their handguns and they fired underwater. They shot the gun underwater. Now, we've done this on our Ask Fuzzy column, believe it or not, what happens when you fire a gun underwater. And, yes, you can fire a gun underwater. I guess because the gunpowder isn't being affected by the water, so it'll still ignite. Well, it's in a sealed capsule, so it's got the, all the oxidizing agent and everything like that. And the bullet's not very effective. It only goes a few metres and it just runs out of puff and then sinks to the bottom. But imagine the effect on a shark. If, the sound and the, the shockwave. You're going to send a really big jolt of sound into the ear structure of the shark. It's going to be pretty cranky. <laughs> uh, 
So the, the couple things about two being underwater. So the bullet goes much slower, but the sound goes much faster. So uh, in air, it's about uh, 20, uh, 1200 meters per, uh, kilometers per second, or per hour, sorry, uh, velocity of, of sound. Underwater, it's uh, 1400 or more, right? But uh, depending also on what depth you're yeah. at. Uh, but the other thing is uh, the water conducts pressure better. So the ears of the poor sharks would have got a really hefty jolt. Well, yeah, if you've ever been in the surf and you get tossed around in the surf, you get that change in air pressure in your ears can be quite disconcerting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> um. So so what you're saying is everyone going surfing these days should have a handgun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what happened? Was it, have you ever fired a handgun, Phil? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I have. I've, I've, I've done some military service and handguns are incredibly inaccurate. So because of the length of the barrel, yeah, the length of the barrel twenty from from a, at a twenty five meter firing range, and you're shooting at a, sorry to say this a, a figure shaped a human figure shaped target. Yeah, uh, I was pretty good shot. I managed to get fourteen out of twenty rounds into the the, the shape from twenty five meters. That's quite difficult. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're, 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 back to the news of the day <laughs> back to the news of the day uh, I, I think uh, we, we, we might uh, kick on to another track in a second but uh, a, a couple more quick items of news before we talk about the main subject uh, great paleontologists including the wonderful Mary Anning uh, that would be Oh, Silly Putty was invented this day in 1950, aspirin in 1899, that's also known as salicylic acid. And here's a big one for you all, uh, I know you've been hanging out for this, the very first example of frozen food, bird's eye package, uh, was launched in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1930. There you go, you can say your life is complete here on Fuzzy Logic. We've been we've been having so much fun talking about sharks and such like that uh, we haven't. Well, let's talk about the main star of our show today, Mary Anning, she who sold seashells by the seashore, <laughs> and the seashells she sells something else ended up in the natural history museums all over the world. <laughs> well, what a what a fantastic story because she says so much about the time in which she lived, right? So she was poor working class, she was female in a blokes only society. She wasn't allowed to even even attend meetings at the uh, the the Royal Geological Society and so on. But for who was she, Phil? What what did she do that well, because it's International Women's Day in a couple of days' time, I thought it would be a good idea to highlight Mary Anning because uh, she really did struggle throughout her life. Uh, she lived along the, the Jurassic Coast in, in England, and um, that's a famous coastline today where even you can go today and just uh, pick up fossils, fossils come, uh, weather out of these uh, uh, cliffs quite often, especially after a storm. But uh, she, was, she spent a lot of time there and started discovering some of the more important fossils, especially of the, the 19th century. She was uh, quite important to paleontology. And this is the, uh, the the formation known as the Lyme Regis? Yeah, well, Lyme Regis uh, is the um, the area and uh, you can go to Lyme Regis today. It's a great town. And uh, what I love is uh, you drive through the town and all the street poles are little ammonites because they, they understand the, the uh, their history and the importance of what what's along their coast. So, um, And even today, uh, I know a couple of guys who are still pulling out some amazing fossils out of that, that region because it's just solid fossils. Well, it sounds like an amazing place to go, and what an amazing woman. Let's, let's put her in context, right? So I've mentioned the, uh, all the uh, chauvinistic gentlemen of the Geological Society and how she was excluded from so much, lived much of her life in poverty, uh, but her date of birth was uh, the 21st of May, 1799, and she died on the 9th of March, 1847, so she died, only lived like 48 years. Yeah, it wasn't a long life, but it was a very 
productive one. Yeah. And um, the first thing she discovered was around 1811. So uh, if you know your dinosaur lore, that's 10 years before the first dinosaur was described when she started finding these things like ichthyosaurs, which are the... Uh, uh, ichthyosaur means fish lizard. And uh, very quickly they recognised that they were reptilian, but they look like a dolphin. Their body shape is very dolphin-like. Um, and that's a thing called convergent evolution when something that isn't related to something else but has the same body shape generally means they're living the same lifestyle. Uh, so these ichthyosaurs look like dolphins, but they weren't dolphins. They were, they were very much lizards. And then she found plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, which were uh, the big, um, I guess you could say, crocodiles with flippers that were swimming through the, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous Seas. So these giant monsters, and for the first time really ever, we were getting a, a real good snapshot of a, a whole ecosystem. It wasn't just a fossil or part of a fossil. There was a whole bunch of things she was finding, the ammonites and the fish and the crabs and pterosaurs and everything from this ancient uh, sea that uh, was just a hot property at the time. You know, a lot of paleontologists came to, to, to get her specimens. So if you go to the Natural History Museum today, there's a very famous wall with all these sorts of marine things that were found in the Jurassic Coast, all on this one giant wall, and most of those were actually found by Mary Anning. Wow, she she was remarkable, and when we get uh, Charles Darwin, we'll see if we can get her at the same time. <laughs> now, let's, let's put her in context of the scientific developments at the time, because she was contemporary with people such as our favourite Charles Darwin, uh, Richard Owen, uh, Huxley, and... The, um, the Gideon Mantell. He, he's a very important guy very early on in, in science and paleontology. Um, yeah, and he's the guy who basically finds one of the first dinosaur fossils as well. So it was kind of the end of an era, like the uh, gentleman scientists, as you said before. Um, they, weren't, they hadn't been professionally trained. They hadn't gone to university to learn geology and paleontology and zoology. In fact, they're the guys that kind of build those sciences. So it's still a very... You know, he had to be rich to be in it, and she was not rich in any way, shape, or form. And that's why she sold her seashells by the seashore, because she was trying to make a living. And, but she had a, a profound effect on scientific thinking. Very much so. Um, in fact, throughout her entire life, she only ever had one paper published, and it wasn't really a paper. It was a letter that she wrote um, uh, in uh, an article that appeared in one of these papers on one of her fossils, and she wrote in to tell them where they'd gone wrong, and they actually printed that because she was absolutely correct. And now that years later we've gone back through all the papers of these great men of science, and there was a bit of a backhanded thing going on where none of them would talk about her with their papers you know like they'd release they, she'd sell the skeleton of an ichthyosaur and one of these guys would take it and then do the science on it and release the paper and it never mentioned her except in their letters in their letters they kept writing to mary anning asking her thoughts on on what was happening and what these features might be or uh, just trying to get her opinion on everything because she was the most experienced person on the planet at the time. So she wasn't just good at finding them because I guess this what you're saying is that she was a mo lot more than just a fossica. By herself, she went and she was actually um, uh, doing biology like she'd get animals and pull them apart to work out their parts and their bone structure and how their their, their internal workings uh, were situated. And she'd do that by herself just to recognise in the fossils what she was seeing. So she was very good at anatomy and things like that. And, um, uh, yeah, a lot of these, you know, these uh, species like the plesiosaur and stuff, they weren't named by her, but she probably had a lot in describing them yeah oh, that that's that really adds a lot i think because it's almost a put down just to say that she just walked along the beach and found interesting bones and so on and gave them to people but she had a, a really good ability to interpret what she found and according to accounts that i, I saw of her she was actually really clever she, yeah yeah and and that's what i mean like that, a lot of these scientists because she was the expert. She'd done more work on these fossils than anyone else, especially in preparing them and things like that. She would have seen a lot of the features. And, and uh, yeah, they asked her a lot. And it wasn't like she just walked along. She was almost killed a number of times. One time, it actually, uh, her favourite dog was killed right at her feet by a landslide. So it's a very dangerous job. 
Wow. <laughs> uh, so the ichthyosaurs, the, the plesiosaur, pliosaurs. Yeah, plesiosaurs. The first pterosaur, that, that's there, the pterodactyls and things, the flying ones. Um, uh, the first one found outside of Germany. So the very first one was found at a, a mine in Germany. Uh, people didn't know what it was. You know, there was theories it was a penguin, um, lots of bizarre things. But she found the very first pterosaur outside of that initial discovery. Um, so she's incredibly important. She, um, she even discovered, noticed that uh, some of the uh, ammonites, which are kind of like squid, they had an ink sac. So nobody had ever noticed this before. You know, ammonites and belamites and things have been found for years. But she was the one who noticed that they actually had modern features like the ink sac. That, uh, and she could see that in the fossils. Uh, okay, so modern features. And so this is, like I say, it had a big effect on the scientific thinking of our burgeoning understanding of fossils and what the significance to life is. And created modern university systems as well. You know, it's really important because, you know, gentlemen scientists they had their basic education most of them were probably going to be lawyers or barristers or something and that's a very boring thing sorry for all the lawyers and barristers out there so you know they their their part-time job or their their um their hobby was natural history and they'd just do this on their own time but a lot of them were so rich it kind of took over their lives well and and then that led to them opening courses you know like obviously became an important thing like for geology you know if you want to find uh, oil or anything like that you need a geologist they, they need to be professionally trained and that led to these new systems in colleges where people would go and actually get degrees in these things and you didn't have to be rich you could be that could be your profession um, and it all started with these people like Mary Annie so this is this is really part of the flowering of modern science as we now know it yeah yeah uh, now, uh, Darwin himself was uh, training for the priesthood <laughs> and but but he was taking a lot of these early courses as well. Like um, uh, one of the famous, the most famous artists, natural history artists, was uh, Audubon, who did all the birds. He's very famous for his bird paintings, and he went to, uh, I think it was Edinburgh University, to give a, a class on how he mounts the animals so that he can paint them and the anatomy and all that stuff and Charles Darwin was in that class Now I imagine that the procedures for dealing with a fossil have changed enormously over the over this time so I, I'm guessing that it originally it was a pretty crude process get out the... Very crude it was you know ignore what the, the rock they were in just get the piece um, they dynamite because a lot of these rocks are very hard to survive all these years um, you know they dynamite that chisel and you're losing a lot of the information because a lot of that rock surrounding it has skin molds or it might have um, uh, traces of the plants or the animals that had come in and eaten the animal when it was dead so you learn a lot just from keeping the soil around it as well and that's one of the big arguments even today um, uh, there's a lot of places where you can buy fossils and there's a lot of commercial fossil dealers out there and there's a big argument from the science scientific community saying sure they're bringing out these fossils that we may never have seen before but they're destroying a lot of the evidence that is the more important evidence now so you lose the context you lose the context it's a kind of forensics, isn't it? Very much so. Re- reconstruct the scene. So if you just get the isolated animal, you know, without its context, you've you've lost so much. So was there a nesting material around it? Was there a cluster of them? Was uh, one of the more famous fossils we have at the museum is the dinosaur poo, the coprolites. And sure, you can, you know, it's a funny thing, and you get kids to smell it and then tell them what it is and you know see their faces. But it's a very important fossil because. Not only can you look into that that poo and see what the the animal had been eating, but you can also see what sort of insect life were around there. So we know that during the the Jurassic, when the giant sauropods, those giant long-necked dinosaurs, they would have been doing a lot of poo, and that's when the dung beetle evolved. (laughs) Well, learning what they ate was of great significance, telling about the vegetation of the time and so on. And even their chewing mechanisms, you know, how their teeth worked, um, how their... Did they have gizzard stones like a lot of animals like birds have today? Oh, gastroliths. Gastroliths. Um, There's so much you learn. So, yeah, it's not just the bones. 
Wow. Well, let's, let's, let's go on to another character of the time who we don't celebrate quite so much, but is very well known. And, uh, uh, and I could tell you, listener, that uh, Phil has got a, an expression on his face because he knows who I'm talking about. But I'll introduce him by quoting our friend Mr. Darwin, who in 1860 said, No one fact so strongly against Owen as a man has never had one pupil or follower. So again, going back to that time of gentlemen scientists, you'd have your your group of friends, you'd show them your fossils and they'd show you their fossils and you'd work out maybe a bit of a theory of what was happening. Nobody talked to Mr. Owen because he was a bit of a dark cloud in a in, in a sunny, dry day, a lovely day. <laughs> um, he was he was quite brutal in the way he de- dealt with people. Um, he took credit for a lot of things, he, like uh, as I said before, Gideon Mantell was one of the guys who found, the, found the, one of the first dinosaurs. Gideon Mantell actually, actually had an accident and was quite ill. Like uh, he was in bedridden for a long time. He hurt his spine, lots of things. And uh, Richard Owen took that opportunity to completely write him out of anything Gideon Mandel had discovered and claimed that he, he himself had probably discovered them. Um, yeah, he was a brutal guy. Uh, th- there are photos, by the way, so the end of his life coincides with the beginning of photography. So there's some quite good uh, portraits of him in his old age. And the most classic one is him standing next to the mower, the giant bird from New Zealand. So you'll see him standing next to this giant bird skeleton. And it's a very famous image of, of Mr. Owen because he's the guy. And he's very important for the Southern Hemisphere. Like uh, in the 19th century, you know, we were finding a lot of fossils in Australia, especially at the Wellington Caves, but we didn't have, you know, back then there was a, even today, you know, we didn't have the specialists. We had to send everything back to the mother country to have it professionally uh, described. So all these things that were found were shipped back to the Natural History Museum in London, and that was Mr. Owen, and he described most of our fossil specimens. Oh, I was going to ask you then, you preempted my question, which oh, was he, he must have done something to get to prominence. He must, apart from being a nasty character, he must have done something of what of, of value. Oh, he, well, he's the guy who who catchphrase dinosaur. Like uh, he didn't discover any of the dinosaurs, but he was the one who started who recognised all these mysterious giant reptilians that were coming out of places like Germany and England and America. Um, they were part of the same group. He he was a fantastic anatomist. He could look at a, just the smallest piece of bone and work out what sort of animal it was and, and have a pretty good idea of the lifestyle. And he's the guy who recognised that these all these things belong together in a new clade and he could call it dinosaurs. Oh, so he, he did make a substantial contribution then. Yeah, and especially for Australia. Like he named the giant wombat Diprotodon, the giant kangaroo Procoptodon, the Australian marsupial lion Thylacoleo. He's the guy who named all of these things, you know, piece of bone was sent to him from New Zealand of a giant bird. He named it the mower and he recognised it as a giant ratite like bird related to the ostrich. Um, he was a fantastic anatomist. It's kind of one of the big tragedies is he was very good, except to all those who worked around him or to him or for him. Uh, he, was a, he was a nasty man. Uh, as long as you weren't associated with him. Well, since we're on the theme of life, uh, today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times and appears in the Fairfax Media Online websites is on the question of metamorphosis. Uh, now, that's an interesting one, uh, that uh, a, a life form fundamentally changes its type or uh, didn't work that very well, but uh, it changes from, from a, a caterpillar to a butterfly. Yeah, uh, I'm a beautiful butterfly. So today's question is about why that evolved, because the very first forms of life did not have metamorphosis. And today, somewhere as much as 65% of insects have uh, metamorphosis of some kind. Because a lot of them have um origins in in the water so a classic one is say the mosquito or the dragonfly the dragonfly is probably the best example because it's one of the more primitive insects we have still flying around Um, they start their life off in the water because there was no life on land when these insects evolved first evolved it was all in the oceans and life was starting to appear you know the very early plants were starting to appear and and some forms of life were starting to leave the oceans and discover this new whole world of trees and plant well there weren't any trees but plants and so that's one reason why they have those two oh, stages oh so its origin was in the water yeah and a lot of insects today still have their origins in the water uh, okay, and then, and then by pupating and um, becoming a, a, a flying insect, they could go and exp- uh, exploit a new territory. 
Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, the other one which we've got coming up at some stage, or well, next next Sunday will be uh, why you get asthma more when when there's a thunderstorm. But uh, on the theme of life and so on, is uh, lifespan. Why do different types of life have different lifespans? So that's a that's that's a pretty tough one. Yeah. Um, again, it might come back to an evolutionary thing. Uh, the, basically, if you think there's a new, like we were just saying, no life on land, it's there to be exploited. Some little animal species manages to get onto land and starts running around, and will it's by itself. It's dominating this landscape it breeds it breeds it breeds until it actually fills every space available for it then it's starting to compete against itself and that's when you start evolution starts kicking in because some of them because you know if you have a million insects some of them are going to be slightly bigger some of them are going to be slightly heavier some of them because there's always a genetic diversity in a group you know all humans aren't built the same Uh. and they start competing themselves and one of those little differences is going to make it more dominant to all the other little insects and it's going to breed on and its characteristics will flow on and size is a big motivator the bigger you are and it takes a long time to become big. So life's, lifespan is often to do with either the domination of a resource or because there's a lack of resources. Well, the other thing is it relates to sex. And you mentioned uh, variation there. Well, to get the variation uh, is one of the reasons why sex, we believe, evolved. And in order for that to work, you, need, you can't live forever because otherwise there's never any genetic variation. And also um, a classic example of that is the giant squid. We know they only live for a very short time and they they have thousands of babies because if they lived, continued to live on and all these babies grew up to be giant squids and then they had babies and all those grew up to be giant squids, the giant squids would just destroy their ecosystem because they're such a successful animal. So So the actual giant squid dies as it's having, after it's had its babies to add its own body back to the ecosystem to allow the young to advance. Oh, well, uh, um, well that, we're running out of time now, but a couple of other ask processes we've got on the go. Um, uh, doves and owls. Why, why an owl is silent but a dove is noisy? You know the little clack, clack, clack from the wings? Yep. Uh, yep, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that's a social cue, a cue to other doves around saying, uh, get your ass out of here, there's something coming. <laughs> yeah, or, um, yeah, like because they live in gregarious groups, doves live and in flocks. And why, why do rabbits have white bums? I think it's a similar thing. We've run out of time. Thank you for your time, Phil Hall, for the National Dinosaur Museum. Time to go. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Uh, catch you later. Radio News. Hello, I'm Rob Douglas. Greens leader Richard Di Natale says a plebiscite on the subject of same-sex marriage will prove Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is moving away from the Tony Abbott-led government. The comments come after Mr Di Natale, opposition leader Bill Shorten and Prime Minister Turnbull were in attendance for last night's Mardi Gras in Sydney. Speaking with the ABC, Mr Di Natale said Prime Minister Turnbull must back up this support by taking the subject of same-sex marriage to the Australian public. 